Hi, this is Brent Skousen, youngest son of W. Cleon Skousen. 22 miles southwest of Jerusalem is an area called Bet Lehi, or House of Lehi. The Arabs refer to this area as a sacred place. As they put it, before Muhammad, there was a great prophet named Lehi who taught here. The advisor to Israel's prime minister, named Joseph Gannat, was visiting Salt Lake City where he met with Dr. W. Cleon Skousen. Among the many things discussed, Brother Skousen gave Dr. Gannat a copy of the Book of Mormon. Nearly a year later, Dr. Gannat phoned Brother Skousen with exciting news. He told him that the Israeli army had discovered a cave at Bet Lehi with artifacts dating back to 600 to 700 BC, which he believed could be where Nephi and his brothers hid after the assassination of Laban. Today this site has become a significant discovery in Israel and continues to be excavated by Jewish archaeologists and is a popular stopover for tourist groups. The following speech given by W. Cleon Skousen takes place at Bet Lehi near Jerusalem. Now sit back and join Brother Skousen in Israel as he relates the history of this important and ancient site. Enjoy! We're located here on a site that is attracting a tremendous amount of attention among archaeologists in Israel. It is called Bet Lehi, or the ruins of the House of Lehi. Now in Judges chapter 15, it talks about a city of Lehi. And in order to put it in its proper historical perspective, let me just tell you this brief story. All of you will probably recall that in 701 BC, all of the cities around here were destroyed by the Assyrians under Sennacherib. Now it was nearly a hundred years later that the Babylonians conquered the Assyrians. And they immediately began taking over some of these cities, including Jerusalem. And in 605 BC, we had uh, Nebuchadnezzar from Babylon coming in and putting all of J Judah and the people of Jerusalem under tribute. He even went into the temple and took out some of the uh, sacred plates and so forth and took them back to Babylon. Now he said, if you'll just pay your tribute, you'll be all right. But it wasn't very long before the king of Judah did not pay his tribute. And so the king came back, or rather Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came back. He invaded Jerusalem the second time. Uh, the first time he had taken um, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego among the refugees. The second time that he attacked, he took 10,000 of the best artisans of Jerusalem, and it included a man who later became the prophet Ezekiel. Now in this second attack, it was a little more vigorous than the first one, and the king of Judah was killed, and a new king was put up on the throne, the brother of the king who had been killed, and his name was Zedekiah. Now I just put these dates together so that you'll begin to appreciate the opening chapter of the Book of Mormon, which is the first year of the rule of King Zedekiah. He was very young, he was only about 21 years of age, and the people had just recovered from the attack that had occurred. Their king had been killed, there is a new administration in power, and what is more, Jeremiah is going up and down saying, if they come back again, if this people does not repent and conform to God's instructions, 
You must know that the next time they come back, this city will be absolutely devastated. The beautiful Temple of Solomon will be torn down, and many of the people will be killed, and the remainder will be carried off as prisoners to Babylon. Now, this is very significant because um, it was amazing that the people just didn't believe Jeremiah. But there was one man in Jerusalem who took those prophecies very seriously. He was a prominent businessman. He had uh, a business down from Jerusalem a number of miles uh, where the caravan routes were. But he lived in Jerusalem proper and was a man of distinction. He had two marvelous revelations. We don't know what the first one was except that it assured him that some tremendous things were going to happen to Jerusalem. He went home, and while he was lying in bed meditating on what he had been told, he had his second revelation, and this time he was shown the destruction of Jerusalem, that Jeremiah was right, and that in due time when the Messiah came among the people, he would be slain by the descendants of those who were then living in Jerusalem. And he was commanded to go and warn the people. So he did. I mean, he probably thought he'd be accepted, sort of a member of the local Rotary Club. And he's going to go out and explain to the people what's, what's going to happen to them. Obviously, uh, thinking they would respect him and that they would respond. Instead, they almost killed him. Uh, they, they, you weren't allowed to say that the people would ever destroy their Messiah when he came. That whole segment of the first coming of the Messiah had been pulled out of all their scriptures. It was unlawful to even teach it anymore. And here he was teaching it. And after that experience, the Lord said to him, don't go back, you will be killed. And I want to lead you to a different land. I want to take you to a promised land with your family and start a whole new segment of Israel in a land to which I will take you. And so this prophet, whose name was Lehi, came down to the land of his inheritance which was down from Jerusalem somewhere, got his camels and his tents and departed into the wilderness, went all down across the Negev, came to um, the Gulf of Aqaba, and then went three days down the eastern side and stopped and camped. Now God had said, you leave all your gold and silver and precious things back at your land of inheritance. I don't want you taking any wealth with you. You just take your family and your provisions and your tents. Now that's the setting for the next revelation, which told him to send his four sons back to Jerusalem to obtain from one of the generals a very precious scripture which had been prepared by the house of Joseph and kept up to date for many centuries. It was written on brass plates. And this general was not a Jew. He was of the house of Joseph himself, and his name was Laban. And so when these four sons went back to say, Father's down on the desert, he's going to a foreign land, and uh, the Lord wants him to have you give him the, uh, the book of remembrance of the tribe uh, of Joseph, why, you can imagine the reaction of General Laban. Why, he said, you thieves, get out of here. I'll have you killed. And uh, they left in a big hurry. And uh, as they got outside of Jerusalem somewhere, they hid in a cave. And the older brothers said to young Nephi, 
you're just like Father. You believe in all these visions and dreams. We told Father this was ridiculous. Laban would never go for this. Now we almost got killed. So let's go back and tell him that it was a failure. The mission didn't work out. Nephi said, no, there's a better way. Let's not give up. Let's go down to the land of our inheritance. Let's get all that gold and silver and bring it up and try and buy these brass plates. And it must have been a big treasure because when Laban saw it, he literally drooled. I mean, he broke the 10th commandment of coveting all over the place. And he not only refused to sell the plates, but he said, you get out of here. And then he told his servants to go kill these four boys and secure their wealth. And uh, Nephi said, we had to abandon all our wealth in order to escape. So once again, they were hiding out in a cave and the older brothers are very angry and Nephi's being beaten. And now they all get to see an angel. And the angel said to Laman and Lemuel, why are you beating on your younger brother? He's going to be your leader. Now you go back to Jerusalem and this time you'll get the record. Well, even after they'd seen an angel, they didn't believe it. Nephi said, look, let me take over. I'll take full responsibility for it. Let us go to the outskirts of the city and you wait there in the darkness and I will go in and see if I can get the record. And so Nephi went into a city that was totally dark. There was only a little tiny opening at the main gate where his brothers were hiding out in the darkness. And he went in and he said, I was led by the Spirit of the Lord to the house of Laban. And all of you remember what happened. Laban turned up right in front of him, staggering along drunken. He had just come from a late meeting with the leaders of the city. And as he fell in front of Nephi, the Spirit of the Lord said, This man, a murderer at heart, tried to slay you. Now I want him slain in order that the record which he would not give you may be the source of salvation and give the commandments to the great people I'm going to raise up in a new promised land. After Laban had been slain, Nephi put on his clothes and his armor, walked in and met the one man of all the servants of Laban that he had to meet, the man who was treasurer in charge of the plates. In fact, he was in charge of all of the treasure of Laban. And he did the best he could to imitate the voice of Laban and amazingly got away with it. And he said, go get the record. I want to take it to my brethren. And of course, Zoram the servant thought that meant the leaders of Jerusalem. So he went in and got the plates. Nephi immediately took them from him and they proceeded. And Nephi says he jabbered all the way to the gate. And Nephi had to respond as best he could pretending that he was Laban. When they got to the gate, they came out where the torches at the gate would reveal Nephi and Zoram. And when the brothers saw him, they fled wildly because they thought it was Laban and a servant. They'd killed Nephi. And Nephi had to shout to them and say, wait, it is I, it is Nephi. Well, now Zoram's got a problem. He looks at him more closely in the light that was available Oh my goodness, what have I done? I've given this precious record to the very people that were here today and that my master refused to give them to. He starts to take off. Nephi said, I was young, but I was big. And I took hold of him, apparently put a half Nelson on him. He's got the plates in the other hand and he's shouting to his brothers to please come back. 
how amazed they must have been as they came back. Here he is with the plates. He's got Zoram around the head. And Nephi said to Zoram, if you go with us and just take an oath that you will not return and um, reveal our identity so that we'd be killed, if you'll just go with us quietly, I'll release you. And Zoram took the oath. And Nephi said, once he'd taken the oath, I, I could trust him. You can see how much the oath meant in those days. Now something amazing happens. The Bible, excuse me, the Book of Mormon says, and this is Nephi writing, and we departed and went to visit, or went back to where our father was located, which was just about two weeks by camelback. They'd undoubtedly brought a camel caravan up. Those men were gone so long that by the time they got home, their mother thought they were all dead. And we owe it to Dr. Joseph Gannat, who pointed out to us that if those boys were involved in the slaying of General Laban and Zoram had disappeared with the plates, obviously everybody's looking for Zoram. He must have done the slaying. So there would have been military searchers everywhere, every nook and cranny, every house, every possible place, which would have meant that they couldn't possibly have gotten out of the country if they hadn't first gone into hiding probably for weeks and weeks until everything had quieted down. Where would they have gone to hide? Some place where they could get food, some place where they were secure, some place where they could hide. There was no possibility of a military uh, investigation locating them. Now that's the setting for the rather remarkable series of parallels and coincidences that have now occurred. When Dr. Joseph Gannat came to Utah, where we have a very outstanding center for the study of Arabic culture, and he being one of those in this country that is in charge of Arabic affairs, he came there to study and for the first time got a chance to see the Book of Mormon and hear about Lehi. And it was an exciting day the morning he called and said, I think we have located the land of inheritance, the place where Lehi lived. And I came over <laughs> mighty fast to that apartment. And that's how things began to unfold. And he had a copy of the literature that exposed a cave in which somebody probably had been hiding about 600 B.C. The writing on the walls was of that particular period. Obviously, it looked like it could have been a treasure cave. Lehi wouldn't leave his money out in the middle of a room somewhere. And it was customary in those days, if you had a lot of wealth, that you would have put it in a treasure cave, a man-made cave with a very small entrance that would be very easy to cover up. Furthermore, the cave is at the foot of a hill that has been known from the most ancient times as the ruins of the house of Lehi. And Joseph Gannat described for you just a little while ago how he talked to some of the Arabs who have been in this territory and occupied it ever since the destruction of Jerusalem. And they've always pointed out to this site as being the residence of an ancient prophet who resided here named Lehi. So we began to put all of these things together, see if we could get a little um, money and, and start a dig here to see if we really are in the right location spoken of in the 15th chapter of 
Judges, and which seems to fit into the story of the Book of Mormon, because so far it's just coincidence and parallels. Nobody's drawing immediate conclusions, but as Joseph Gannat says, the evidence is, is amazingly uh, impressive. So when they started the dig here in this particular location, they didn't go down but just a few inches, and here was the foundation of a beautiful, huge church that had been hit, built here by Christians. Archaeologists already knew that early Christians considered this hill a very sacred place. And when they were forced to leave Jerusalem, it was to this hill they came and, and developed an underground church. Why did the early Christians know something special about this hill that would draw them to it and would have them build a church here? We don't find Christian churches on these other hills or other places. The archaeologists here have decided early Christians considered this a very sacred place. Now, our research continues. This is just the beginning of the dig. We'll get down below the Christian era. We'll get down to the time of Father Lehi, eventually, and we'll get additional evidence of what really existed here on this important hill. At this point in time, uh, it is being dug by Dr. Shafrir of the Hebrew University in cooperation with us at the Freeman Institute. And uh, we just feel that something very exciting is going to come out of all of this. What you see here is the most prominent, the biggest dig, and the largest mosaics that have been uncovered here in the Middle East. And so you can see why Hebrew University is excited about it. And because of its possible tie-in with Father Lehi and the Book of Mormon, we're excited too. Around 1400 B.C., a very famous incident happened in the Bible that you're all familiar with. Samson, in flight, fled over to the border between the Philistines and that of, uh, of the tribe of Judah. And he went up onto a high rock, and the Philistines said to the people of Judah, if you don't get him down from there, we're going to attack you. So they came to uh, Samson, and they said, won't you please give yourself up? I mean, you don't want to have us killed. And so he said, I, all right, I will. If you won't hurt me, I'll come down, and you can bind me and turn me over to them. And so they did, and when uh, he got with the Philistines, you'll remember that he just broke the bands, and they started to try to get a hold of him, and he was knocked down to the ground, and he's scrambling around for a rock or something, and he gets a hold of a jawbone of an ass. And that's all Samson needed. He was a big man, and he started laying out people right and left until finally, after about a thousand of them were slain or on the ground, or they just all fled and left him. Now, the word um, jawbone in, or cheekbone in Hebrew is lachi, jawbone. And so that place was thereafter called Lehi. We'd call it Lehi. It was called lachi. And uh, they've always wondered specifically about where it was. Well, the Muslims have always said that there was a Lehi and there was a place where the ruins of the house of Lehi were located, Bethlehi. And they've known this for quite a long time. And archaeologists here in Israel were aware of the fact, but 
no particular attention was paid to it until 1961 when they were building a military road right about in that district where it could have been and uh, they scraped off the top of a cave. This is an unusual cave because it was man-made, had a very small entrance and it had three rooms like a clover leaf and they, uh, they had been dug out and this was typical of the treasure caves of that period of time. Now, there was a spring nearby that's mentioned in the Bible where Samson said he was able to finally get a drink. So a lot of things were beginning to come together. When the Book of Mormon was translated and came into our possession, um, we knew that there was a land of inheritance that belonged to Lehi that was down from Jerusalem, but we didn't know where. But we had a good idea that it was somewhere near the caravan routes because Lehi obviously was a metallurgist and a merchant in gold, silver, and precious things. And he would undoubtedly have a treasure cave. And furthermore, uh, we know that the sons hid out in caves uh, in places where they would be able to get food and the likelihood is they would go back to a cave that would be near their home wherever the land of inheritance was. So Dr. Gannott got to reading the Book of Mormon, the fourth and fifth chapters, and he said, you've got to recognize something, that when Zoram was captured by the four sons of Lehi uh, after the death of Laban, they would have been in hiding for quite a long period of time. And they would have gone into the most secure place possible because it was a military um, death and the police and the military would have been looking every nook and cranny all through the country so you can be sure that they would have been hiding in some secure place when they got home their mother thought that they were dead so you can tell that they'd been gone a long time so Joseph Gannott pointed out he said we found out something rather astonishing we found a place which the most ancient tradition says is the ruins of the house of Lehi Furthermore, we have found um, a cave in which somebody appeared to have been hiding around 600 B.C. because we can tell by the alphabet and the kind of writing that was in it. Whether or not it was the sons of Lehi, we wouldn't know, but somebody was in there. And uh, it was a cave that was undoubtedly used as a refuge. In the cave, it used the word Jerusalem, that Jerusalem would be redeemed. And so this became known among archaeologists as the Jerusalem cave. But Joseph Gannat said, it's really the cave of the house of the ruins, the ruins of the house of Lehi, Bethlehem. When we got to, uh, Dr. Gannat uh, got to talking to some of the older Bedouins, they said there used to live a prophet at this place, and he had an oak tree where he used to come and bless the people. And you can see it's a it was a huge oak tree. It's a very old oak tree. And so stones were built all around that tree before it died so that the goats wouldn't get up and desecrate this place where this Israelite prophet used to come and administer and bless his people. Another oak tree has grown up several hundred years old right next to it. This is all on top of the mountain that is associated with the cave of Lehi or the Jerusalem cave. You're going to see this area, and we felt for a long time that this was a very sacred spot and we ought to do something about digging it, to see if this was the place that Samson called Lehi and was a community or a land of inheritance from which Lehi himself might have come. 
As Joseph Gannat points out, many times when you came from Nazareth, you were called a Nazarene. They wouldn't call you by your right name. They'd say, there goes the Nazarene. And they think that maybe that Lehi was called Lehi because that was the land of his inheritance, Lehi. In any event, we began digging, and lo and behold, one of the richest openings and finds of archaeologists in the Holy Land territory was uncovered last year. And you're going to see that the Christians counted that mountain as a very sacred, special place. Now the stones that were on the walls of the cave are written as about 600 B.C. It's very difficult for you to make out the writing that is on it, so I will just read to you what the translation is. One of the statements is, Yahweh is God. In other words, Jehovah is God of the whole earth. The mountains of Judah belong to him, to the God of, of Jerusalem. Another one said, I am Yahweh, thy God, and I will accept the cities of Judah and will redeem Jerusalem. Another one says, exalt us, O merciful God, deliver us, Lord. Some of the figures that are standing there always have the signal like this. This is a priest praying. Always the fingers are divided in this manner, two on each side. And whenever you see that, that is a priest speaking. So it is believed that someone who had considerable background on the Bible, the priesthood, the future of Jerusalem, and the fact that it would be redeemed was in hiding in this cave. These are all coincidental facts that don't lead us to any special conclusions yet. But our diggings have begun at this area, and um, the Freeman Institute, in cooperation with the Hebrew University, has been sponsoring the dig. And in this part of the world, it's considered a spectacular finding. And so they're looking forward to opening up more of the dig this summer and next year. So we just wanted you to see the stones that were taken off of the walls of the cave and know that the writing that was put, in that, put on that wall was the alphabet prior to the destruction of Jerusalem or about 600 B.C. Jerusalem was destroyed 587 B.C. by the Babylonians. And then their alphabet changed, as you can see over here on the wall. And so that's how they know that these were inscriptions of about that date. Now we're up here on the Mount of Olives, which is about 300 feet taller than Mount Moriah used to be. The Temple Mount or Temple Square or Esplanade that we're looking at uh, is a leveled portion of the top of Mount Moriah. So you have to imagine that originally uh, this was a rounded slope and that beyond, the higher mountain beyond, which today is improperly called Mount Zion, looked down on Mount Moriah. Mount Moriah was sort of in between the Mount of Olives and the higher mountain to the west. There have been some marvelous things happen in this sacred part of the earth. I've often wondered why the Lord, in planning the earth and the events that would happen on it, would select this particular site. It's one of the most sacred and yet one of the most desecrated spots on the face of the earth. 
Down through the years, it almost seems as though the adversary and his forces did everything they could to make this place obnoxious and ugly and desecrated. On these same mountains where the prophets walked, we've had uh, temples to all of the various pagan gods. The fertility rites were practiced here. Uh, children were sacrificed to Moloch, the, the god of the pagans. Those things all happened here, and every so often the whole area would have to be cleansed. It was cleansed in the days of Hezekiah, had to be cleansed again in the days of Josiah. Uh, it's just a, a phenomenal history of events that have occurred here. Now, in the year 1000 B.C., as David took over this area, uh, he wanted to make Jerusalem his capital. Now, they, at that time, Mount Moriah was still a rounded area, a rounded surface. And um, he wanted to level it off and make a temple there. The Lord gave him all the instructions for the building of the temple, but would not allow him to build it. His son, Solomon, was given that assignment. And what Solomon had to do was to build those high walls all the way around the mountain, level it off, and fill in the crevices so that it was flat. Does everybody follow that? You see how they did? They leveled off the top of the mountain and then had the walls around here and they would fill in all of that area so that they had a flat surface. In the days of Solomon, the Temple Mount was not as large. The Esplanade or Temple Square was not as large. It was later enlarged by Herod. In fact, he built it until it was nearly 35 acres square. And he had it as large as you saw at the model city with the court of the Gentiles, a huge area where the people could come, then the court of the women and the court of sacrifice. Now, 600 A.D., the Mohammedans came into existence as a result of an Arab who lived down at Mecca and who had been trained by Catholic priests and also by Jewish rabbis. He deeply regretted that his people were worshiping over 300 idols. And he'd been converted to the fact that there is just one God with prophets. And he said that he had a vision in which he was brought to this mount and uh, ascended into heaven on a shaft of light. And he visited with the angel Gabriel and also with Moses and with the prophet Jesus Christ. You see, they've got Jesus as a prophet. And he gained the instructions for the building of a new religion called Islam, which means conciliation and peace with God. And so his followers came where he was supposed to have gone to heaven and erected that dome that we now call the Dome of the Rock. There is a seven-foot outthrust of limestone right in the middle of that temple square <clears throat> that must have been left for some good reason. And um, traditionally, it is the site of the top of the mount where Isaac was sacrificed. The Mohammedans or Muslims say that it was actual Ish Ishmael, uh, that the Jews changed the Bible, and that it was the other son who was the father of the chosen people. So, a little controversy there, but in any event, we consider the son of Jacob, 
to have been the, uh, the, the correct rendition. As it was Isaac, I should say, son of Abraham. It is a shrine and, a, and about the third most, most sacred shrine the Muslims have. They do not worship in the Dome of the Rock. Uh, they Rather, they go there to pray, they, but they do not worship in a formal way. That is done in the Aqsa Mosque, and that's the building that you see with the silver dome. And in that building, they will gather on their holidays. It will hold about, about 5,000 people. But those who can't get in the Aqsa Mosque will assemble on the, um, uh, the, the esplanade itself. And sometimes there are bodies, there isn't a single square foot where there isn't somebody kneeling at one of their national holidays. It's a very impressive sight. Now, all, this city was completely torn down by the Romans in 70 AD. And it was not until the Muslims rebuilt it under the Turks, the Turkish Muslims, rebuilt it about 540 AD. They tried to build the walls where the old walls used to be. And so what you're seeing is really a Turkish wall. And the city that you see today is a Turkish Muslim city. It's an Arab city. It is not the, the beautiful Roman city that Jesus knew when he was here. Uh, nevertheless, the Israelis are now trying to beautify the city gradually. In the new part of the city, they do not molest the older part because that's all under Arab ownership and rule. Now, if you will look at the far southern end of this wall, down to your far left, you will see the, the, the highest point, the highest part of the wall. It's about 126 feet tall. It's called the pinnacle of the temple. And it was at that point that Jesus was, is supposed to have been taken by Lucifer and urged to jump off because the psalm said that he would not be allowed to be hurt, the angels would bear him up. And so um, that's one part of the wall you'll want to know about. A little further down the wall, do you see the, the golden gates? Can you see the golden gates? Right down toward the, the bottom of the Kidron Valley. That is the, um, the gate where Gabriel is supposed to come and uh, trumpet the resurrection. It's also supposed to be the gate to which Jesus will enter when he goes to his temple following his um, messianic reign at the beginning of the, uh, at least his appearance among the Jews. Uh, the Muslims therefore have put rock and stone in it to postpone the day of judgment and the coming of Gabriel and the coming of the Messiah of the Jews. That's the story. Come a little further along the wall now to the gate. You'll see that knoll of green grass and then a gate that leads into the city. That's the gate of St. Stephen because it's believed that after Stephen was condemned, they brought him out of the Sanhedrin and he was stoned on that surface, that green surface there that you see right beside the gate and that's called the, the site of his stoning. Now I guess the, there are so many important things that have happened on this mountain, I'm only going to mention a few. 
You should know that first of all, in 2000 B.C., there was a great city here called Salem. It was inhabited by a king called Melchizedek. Today we call the city Yul-Salem, Yul-Salem, U-R-U-S-A-L-E-M, with a J in front of it, which means city of peace. Salem means peace, Shalom means peace, Yul means city of, and then we put the J in front of that, so it's Jerusalem, city of peace. It hasn't had peace at any time in its whole history. Uh, that's a future time when it will become a, a true city of peace. When Abraham arrived here around 2000 B.C., he paid tithes to Melchizedek. A short time later, the city was translated so that when Abraham wanted a, a wife for his son Isaac, there was no people here where his son could intermarry with, and he had to send his servant clear up to Pandanaram on the Euphrates River to bring back Rebekah as a wife for Isaac. That's kind of a romantic, exciting story by itself because she was selected for Isaac by the Lord himself. That's kind of a nice way to have your wife picked out. She was a beautiful girl. I mean, the Lord really did a nice selection job there in that particular case. So by the time Abraham was supposed to sacrifice Isaac and he brought him to this mountain, the city of Melchizedek had gone. It had been translated and joined the city of Enoch, so it was gone. And uh, from then on, you have Abraham living like a little island here, surrounded entirely by Canaanites or Amorites, pagan people. Now you come down um, to the period of 1000 when David and Solomon wanted to clear this mountain in accordance with the Lord's instructions and build a beautiful temple here. And it was the pride of all of Israel until 587 when the city was completely demolished by the Babylonians. They tore every wall down, they tore the beautiful temple of Solomon down, and they left this city practically denuded. Uh, in 538, the Jews returned under the auspices of the Persian leader Cyrus and they were allowed to rebuild their temple, which was dedicated in 516 B.C. wasn't as nice as Solomon's temple, but nevertheless it was their temple for 500 years until Herod came along and said, I'll rebuild it a little piece at a time. He actually wanted to tear the old one down and start from scratch, and they said, no, you'll tear it down and never rebuild it. Well, he said, then let me do it a little bit at a time. I'm your friend. I want to be nice to you. So they let him rebuild it, and it took um, many, many years to complete. By the time of the life of Jesus, uh, it was nearly finished. Courtyards were nearly completed, etc. And then in 70 AD, that terrible destruction came again. See, this city has been built up and torn down at least five times. As I mentioned to you earlier, as Jesus came to the last day of his ministry, 
He looked out over the city, we think from the pinnacle of the temple, and said, O Jerusalem, O Jerusalem, how oft I would have gathered you as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wing, and ye would not. Ye have stoned the prophets, and now your house is left unto you desolate. When he came in on Palm Sunday, he stopped the little donkey before um, it got down into Brook Kidron, and he just wept. He said, I have seen what will happen to this city, and it is terrible. In 70 AD, they were starved out. Over a million people lost their lives, and they were eating their dead before the surrender or the conquest finally took place. Titus administered the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. from Mount Scopus, which is over here where the Hebrew University is that was pointed out to you as we came in. That was Mount Scopus. And his troops came down and they would break through one wall after another. And when they were ready to make the final uh, invasion, uh, they said to Josephus, one of the Jewish generals who had surrendered, do you want anything out of this city before our soldiers go in? Because uh, once they're in there, they will burn, ravish, and destroy. And Josephus says, please, can I get the library out of the temple? And they said, yes, if you wish. So he went in. He was horrified, he said later, to find them eating their dead children. Uh, that was the only food they had, devouring their, their dead as the prophets had predicted, should they become apostate. He went to the temple, gathered out all of the records from the temple, took them to Rome, and wrote the, his famous book, The Wars of the Jews, by Josephus, and some additional works, in which he fills in a lot of details that are not in our Bible, from records that he had that we don't have. So in my books, I occasionally quote Josephus because I consider him quite a good, creditable historian, except for chronology. He tried to reconstruct the chronology. His dates are off considerably. But the other things that he has seem to have been fairly accurately recorded. Now, once the city was destroyed by the Romans, they told the Jews they must get out of here. They scattered them all over the world. Uh, when Marco Polo got to China, he found Jewish Chinese way over there. They were scattered way up in Europe. The Christian nations pretty well uh, isolated them and persecuted them, put them into ghettos. It was among the Arabs that the Jews found a haven. Uh, they were able to um, mingle with the Jews, uh, with the Arabs in Spain, in the Iberian Peninsula of Portugal and Spain, Nearly everywhere else they were not welcomed. In 1492, all of the Jews and Arabs were chased out of the Spanish peninsula, the Iberian peninsula, and they scattered all up and down this territory. And it was the Arabs who befriended the Jews during that period. So that when this ter territory was taken over by the European troops during World War I and the Turks lost control of it, it was the Jews who intervened with the British government to be sure that they were kind to the Arabs as well as give the Jews a homeland. 
But of course, that's another story. I only want to mention one or two other things. About halfway up this mountain, on the last day of Christ's ministry, the Savior had talked so much about going away, being lifted up and destroyed, and the disciples were beginning to realize he was going to go somewhere, but they didn't quite understand exactly yet what was going to happen. And so they said, when will you come in your glory? If you're going away now, when are you going to come in power? And so he sat them down somewhere along this slopes of the Mount of Olives where there were lots of trees in those days. And there in the shade of those trees, he gave them what we have in the 24th chapter of Matthew, the history of the world down to our day. It's highly condensed. It tells about the destruction of Jerusalem by the Romans. It tells of the scattering of the Jews and the Israelites, the northern ten tribes had already been scattered. And then it talks about the great restoration period when the gospel of the kingdom would be delivered to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people, and then the millennium would come. All of that is in the 24th chapter of Matthew. We also remind ourselves that it was on this mountain that an apostle of the Lord in modern times was sent in... Uh, 1841 to dedicate this land for the return of the Jews. But somewhere on the slopes of this Mount of Olives, he dedicated this land for the return of the Jews and eventually of all Israel, the ten tribes and the others who will be gathered here. One other thing we have to remember is that from the top of this mountain, over toward Bethany, Jesus ascended into heaven. The ascension took place on this mountain. And the disciples, 12 apostles, 11 of them, stood there gazing into heaven, and suddenly there were two angelic beings who said, Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing into heaven? This same Jesus which was taken from you into heaven shall so come in like manner. From heaven. And a little later on, we'll give you the details of the second coming, which will be incidental to the Battle of Armageddon, which will occur sometime in the future. So here from the Mount of Olives, we're looking down on one of the most sacred and yet one of the most desecrated, blood-soaked cities or regions or districts of the whole planet Earth. Jerusalem, which eventually will become the spiritual capital of the world just prior to the millennium. And that's another story that we'll treat a little later.